Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Welcome back, listeners, to Freedom of Species. We bring animal advocacy to the airwaves from 3CR Community Radio. I am Davita. I'm one of your hosts today, and I'm coming to you from Rwandri country in Narm. I uh, pay my respect to the Rwandri elders and acknowledge that these lands are stolen. I also want to give a shout out to Sally Goldner and her show Out of the Pen that has just finished. Sally brings you queer radio every week right before us at noon at 3CR Community Radio, so make sure to tune in. For today's show, I am teaming up with my co-host, Adam. Ahoy! Hello, Adam. And we have two wonderful guests today from the Urban Field Naturalist Project who have written the book, A Guide to the Creatures in Your Neighborhood. So joining us today are Zoe and Dieter from Sydney. Zoe is an award-winning book designer, writer and senior lecturer at the School of Design of the University of uh, Technology, Sydney. And we also welcome Dieter, who is a professor in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the Uni of Sydney. So Zoe and Dieter, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks, Devota. Yeah. So this book is set to convert you into a budding backyard David Attenborough and this sounds great I'm here for it so uh, so let's get into it <laughs> your your book is an invitation it invites us to attune to the creatures and the worlds that they're building right here in our direct surroundings and yeah what do you hope that your readers experience by accepting that invitation um I think I mean I think Dita actually has a great way of answering this question. So um, rather than allowing him to mansplain, I think I might um, jump in for him. <laughs> um, Dita, one of the things that I love when we do these talks about the book is that you talk about how many different ways there are to engage with this. And one of the things we tried to do with the book was to make sure that it's not one story for one audience, that we're trying to appeal to as many people as possible. So, Dita, now that I've taken those words out of your mouth, uh, I'll let you speak. <laughs> well, that was beautifully explained, Zoe. Um, look, I mean, look, I mean, one of the things is there's a lot of good reasons to get out and enjoy nature and enjoy the things that are around you. And you, you don't have to like all the reasons, but when you find the one that works for you, it's it's really worth going out and doing it. And I think one of the things that leapt out to us when we were having the conversations about um particularly the things that we were observing under, um, say, lockdown conditions when we weren't moving as far as we were previously. Is there's, there's a lot of um, amazing things that are happening right beneath our noses and we haven't really noticed them. So we talk about um, finding the extraordinary and the ordinary and perhaps celebrating some of the, the chunks of nature that we haven't um, 
historically celebrated as much as others. So one of the things we wanted to do was really, like, like Zoe said, find a way to just um, tell some of the stories, tell them in ways that might work for people in, of different um, um, or di- with different opinion, different mindsets. And, and it was really just a bit of a an effort in, in, in trying to say there's some great stuff happening in front of us and we probably haven't noticed it much historically and that's where that's where a big part of the storytelling and the things we wanted to share came from yeah because you you mentioned it, it can be plants on the windowsill or in your balcony there's lots of places to start looking and also i suppose shifting that idea that nature is something that we have to go out and find like you've got to go for a bushwalk or an ocean swim to have some sort of dramatic encounter with nature but actually it could just be And as all of us found, I think during lockdown, when we were sitting around and maybe looking at a small patch of grass in the backyard or what we could see from our balcony, when you actually sit still and look for a while, which is something that ecologists do, but other, you know, like most of the rest of us tend to kind of rush about our lives, all of a sudden a different world right underneath um, our noses opens up. And that's really important for people, I think, in urban areas in particular. Yeah. One of the things that I that jumped out at me, it's on one of the very first pages, is a, um, a a piece you've written, which is our focus is therefore not on counting creatures, but on exploring what they're up to and why, delving into their remarkable lives in a way that might produce a fuller appreciation of who they are and why they matter. And I really love that framing of those other creatures that we live with right next to us they live we we have our houses and our yards and whatnot but it's also their yards it's also their houses and i love that you that you sort of break down that dichotomy between us and those who live here with us and who we live with i wonder if you could speak about that a little bit um yeah look i mean i I think from from my perspective as an ecologist i think one of the things that i've noticed is that my community of ecologists we're, we're a really conservative group of people when it comes to what we value in nature and what we don't value. And I think we probably um, take things for granted just as much as the next person. And I think some of the things that you mentioned about the things that we live with, there's some fascinating things that are, that are going on. And the, the bit that really um, resonated for me is that even with a citizen science initiative or a lot of the day job, we do count things for good reasons. But a lot of the reasons um, a lot of us were really interested in studying animals and plants isn't so much about I suppose the big picture science, but when we started learning about the natural history in, in the classical sense of understanding not only who they are, but what they were doing and why they were doing it, things just got fascinating. And you go down rabbit holes with plants or animals or even rabbits, I guess. Um, you can you, there's 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 such a fascinating biology that underpins it, and I think um, you know I, I appreciate there's some problematic elements to the natural history tradition. But there's also some spectacularly fascinating things, things that have been, um, you know, a lot of our major scientific advances, like the foundation of most of our biology evolution came from careful observations and asking questions about what something was and why it was doing it. So I think that, you know, p- part of me, it sort of fitted in with my worldviews, and it, but also fitted in a bit with my, um, my sense of enjoyment of my day job. Mm. Yeah, and I I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting about the project is that we do come from really different backgrounds. So um, Dita and also John Martin are both scientists on the project or ecologists on the project, and Tom Van Duren is a field philosopher. 
Uh, and then Andrew Burrell and I come from a design background. So it's a, it is an unusual uh, group of people to put together. And one of the, the first things that um, Andrew, well, not the first thing, but something that Andrew and I did um, early on in the project was we put together an exhibition called um, A Guide to Lesser Known Pollinators just at the UTS Library as a way to talk about what we were doing. And Dieter and I worked um, really closely on developing this guide to lesser known pollinators, which is some of that has made it into the book. But what we were looking at um, is where artists and designers took inspiration from nature, which is a really different type of observation than the sort of observation that you would expect scientists to do. Um, and Tom, in his, uh, in his work as a philosopher, also does a lot of observation of nature and we, we come at it from these really different angles and really different disciplinary backgrounds. But the one thing that we all share is observation the observation and pleasure that we take from nature, but then what we do with those observations is quite different in all of our fields. Yeah. I, I really love that. Um, yeah, the the multiple disciplines that are coming together and it speaks to that history of, of um, natural history, which is, um, or, and field naturalist sort of um, beginnings, which had people who were observing and taking scientific biological um, sort of recordings, but they were also writing, they were also drawing and designing and um, and they were also philosophers. You know, when we look back at history, they they did all of these things and it's sort of like you're bringing all that back to us and showing us, you know, look at what we've done in the past. We continue, we can do this again. We can bring all of these wonderful things together again. Very inspiring. I love it. Yeah, I, I love the, the part where you say, you know, you discuss the field naturalist tradition and you critique it as well. We might be able to talk about that later. And then you reference common citizen science programs. But then you say this book favors wonder over data, um, over data. And I certainly feel that that wonder is and yeah, wonder and attention are attitudes that can be learned and can really be transformative. So can you tell us a bit more about your sense of wonder and any personal experiences you've had? I mean, I think one of the things that, again, like I'm I'm really jumping in and speaking for you here, Dita, but we're also, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we've had a few of these conversations and I know that one, one thing that I love about the project and I also like about the book and we tried to have it come through in the pages of the book is that we don't all agree on everything. Um, and so I certainly... Um, very much aligned with the kind of wonder over the da over data and my sense of interest in the naturalist tradition um, is very much the kind of romantic um, uh, sublime the you know the the romantic notion of sublime which is very much about kind of awe and wonder but also includes that notion of kind of horror as well and I always really enjoyed that I mean as a teenager I really loved um, the artworks of people like Aubrey Beardsley but also of natural um, history illustrators and I think what the natural history illustrators didn't do well often I think was capture some of the sublime some of the kind of the awe but also awfulness of the natural world um, and so where I really liked um, more kind of fantastical illustrators were the ones that showed the the, the violence and the, um, the kind of fear that's in there. So I suppose um, that comment to me is not so much um, that data doesn't have a sense of wonder in it, but that for me, I've never engaged with citizen science or I didn't 
end up kind of pursuing science as a career because for me the wonder was very much in that um, that sense of the poetic sublime. But Dita probably has a different <laughs> reading on that. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, I, yeah, I do. Um, look, I mean, I, 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 and it's just coming from a different a worldview where I actually see an immense amount of wonder in understanding how the natural world works and some of the the amazing things you read about on a weekly basis in terms of um, what what people are producing around the world in terms of science and nature and the fact that we know so little um, about so much. There's always, you know, there's the, 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 our capacity to understand how and why animals and plants are doing what they do is just skyrocketing. And I, I, I keep looking at, the, you know, the, the weekly things that come out in, in pop science and realising what's happening around the world. So I see a lot of wonder in understanding and, and, and I guess the data that drives that. I guess the, the wonder over data part for me partly is I think some citizen science projects are very much driven by trying to make use of the fact that we've got potential to harness multiple eyes on the ground to give us the capacity to to learn things or see things we wouldn't see if we were just doing it ourselves. And that's really precious. I know from some of the citizen sciences initiatives that I'm, I'm part of, that's given us the chance to learn things about some of our animals we wouldn't have learned previously because people have shared their observations. But sometimes that's that's the extent of your, your participation. And I think the, the wonder part of it for, for me is really embedded in the not just knowing that something's there or even just learning its name, but learning about what it's doing and why it's doing it. it, it you know, the, the natural world's an amazing place. I mean, I'm, I'm worried now that I've, I've converted Zoe to the more brutal parts of, of nature because that's the bit that has always enthused me, parasitism, predation. Some of the stuff that happens is just, you know, it's not fit for public consumption, but it's fascinating. Um, but, there's, but there's also, um, you know, there's, you, you do see such beautiful things too. I mean, in terms of wonder, I'm, I mean, a big part of my work, so I study small things and one of my privileges of looking at insects and spiders is some of the most beautiful things you'll see in nature aren't very big. They're tiny. I'm lucky enough to have the tools at work to let me see them. And, you know, sometimes I'm just trying to work out what the name of something is, but other times I'm just looking going, wow, you know, this ant looks ridiculous <laughs> and beautiful. So. Yeah. Yeah. I actually learned a few things that um, mosquitoes eat nectar. I was like, Oh, so they're not only eating plots, you know, like stuff like that. Yeah. And I think those things are great hooks to get um, people in. Um, you know, for me, one of the um, the ways of thinking about it, about what would be interesting or not interesting in the stories or um, in, in the engagement that we're doing is when you have novices like me. I mean, I refer to myself as an amateur naturalist um, because that's as close to science as I'm going to get. But the things that make me... Uh, yeah, filled with wonder or even just um, kind of start, like that's interesting, that's different. And so some of that is looking at what's going on around you, but some of it is also the behaviour shifts that you hope you might put in urban dwellers by making them appreciate that there are things going on out there, that there's like a kind of bird world and there's a spider world. And rather than seeing a spider and going, <laughs> kill it, thinking about like what's it doing and, you know, selfishly, what could it do for me? Most of us are aware that if we don't kill spiders, we'll be bitten by less mosquitoes. You know, there's those sorts of things, but also just having a sense of um, and not so much projecting our humanness onto things, but having a sense that you're understanding that these are creatures going about their business as we are mm. as well. I think that's enough to make a little shift in the way that we look at the world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
the book notes that that wander may be in short supply nowadays. And you express a sense of urgency in this moment that it's important now to hold open space for the many life forms that are still here. Can you tell us a bit more about this sense of urgency that you feel? Yeah, I mean, from from my perspective, it's complicated because we, we, you know, in terms of urgency, we, you look at how much we rush around our day to day lives, and one of one of the real, I mean, this is going to sound like a bit a bit of it might sound overly philosophical, but there's an urgent need to slow down and just relax, and it's it's difficult because we work at we, environmental catastrophism is a big part of our our day job sometimes, and you know we we know that there's a, a looming extinction crisis. We have concerns over climate change. I think one of the beauties of what we're trying to do is that if you can start enjoying the here and now and seeing the seeing the good and the and and and, and the great in the in the things that are in and around us, it gives you a chance to start looking at, at nature in a slightly different way. It might help change bigger picture behaviours too, which I think is potentially quite important too. But you know, I always worry about the urgency because I, I do a fair bit of teaching here at university, and I worry that many of my narratives are driven around some of the you know, a deficit model of the real challenges we face. And I guess just seeing some of the beauty and the the nice things in your day-to-day is really nice. I mean, I know I've got a, you know, for instance, I've got a noisy miner that visits me all the time, which they're birds that aren't very well liked by most ecologists. But I'm, you know, I love being in my office and having a, a noisy miner bang on my window and request some some food from me. It's just a, a nice interaction <laughs> that I have. So, <laughs> um, No, I agree. I think that's great, even though, I've got a noisy minder that drives me absolutely bonkers at home because it's got like the least musical song you can ever imagine and the nest is there and it's just that it's like water torture for me. But, you know, it's better to have a bird than no bird. Um, I do. I mean, I think one of the things for me is that really resonated with me was the notion of ecological amnesia and um, shifting baseline syndrome. And so this idea that I moved to the suburb that I lived in about four years ago and my son is six now. So during lockdown in particular, when we had um, limited amounts of time that we could spend outdoors and there were limited things to do because the local playgrounds were shut down, you couldn't touch things, um, I started going bird watching with him as something that we could do together. And it occurred to me that we really saw five species of bird in our park And in, you know, 10 years, it could be that there are only three species there, but it's also possible that five to 10 years ago, there were 50 species there. But my understanding of what is normal now is based on my kind of new knowledge of this area. And his understanding of normal is only going to exist at all if someone like me takes him by the hand and walks him around and points to things and names them. And we have conversations about what they're doing. And um, that to me is brought to the fore by looking at the next generation with me, but also with the students that I teach. And I'm going on a little tangent here, but um, one of the projects that we did this semester with some third year students was, and we looked at how they could do some sort of visual communication to help people understand the importance of bats in urban communities. And so the project wasn't about bats, it was about teaching them specific design skills. But the really interesting thing that came out of it is that at the beginning of the semester, they don't know what I'm going to make them do the project on, there was kind of palpable that we were doing bats. But by the end of the semester, I had these like 22 bat converts, (laughs) this kind of engagement, noticing conversation, like it spirals out. And it's not just about 
noticing the nature in your backyard and then all of a sudden it's like oh we all had a nice moment because we looked at the sunset or we appreciated a bird it's like something fundamentally shifts like our understanding of who we are what's around us and how we can have agency in the world changes when we start to have different conversations so the urgency about the wonder is like how do we turn the situation of being through a pandemic into talking less about what was the documentary, the kind of the Netflix thing about the tiger guy? Oh, the tiger king. The tiger king, right? So everyone's talking about the tiger king for a while, which is like maybe not that useful as a conversation. But as we went deeper into the pandemic, other people started talking about the things they were noticing in their neighbourhood. Like let's have some urgency around the conversations that we're promoting and talking about, like less tiger king and maybe more what are the miners doing in my yard? (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah and it's so cool because i i really love that you respond to urgency with slowing down that you propose to slow down and you can see that in some of the exercises that you offer which we'll discuss soon they have a meditative aspect it's about finding stillness you offer space for sensing grounding um yeah so i really love how you respond to urgency with 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 slowing down We have to slow down a bit with a break. We'll be back after the song My Goodness by Emma Donovan. Take all that I have 
No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail laws now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Hi, my name is Bundalini, also known as Robbie Thorpe. I want to invite you to the 2022 Beyond the Bars CD launch on Thursday the 10th of November at Arnie Elmer Thorpe's Gathering Place, Dadi Munwaro, 546 to 550 High Street, Preston. There will be a panel discussion on First Nations incarceration and justice, some live music with Amos Roach, and free copies of this year's Beyond the Bars CD. Thursday the 10th of November, Arnie Alma Thorpe's Gathering Place, Daddy Munmaru, 6 to 8pm. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyondthebars. Welcome back, listeners. You just heard My Goodness by Emma Donovan. Uh, we're talking about the book A Guide to the Creatures in Your Neighborhood with Zoe and Dieter. So let's talk a bit more about what's inside the book. And, and can I just say, it is a beautiful book. Mm. I really appreciate the time and effort that's gone into producing something that just looks nice and is enjoyable to flip across each page. The, the colors that you've used, the line drawings. Yeah. It's gorgeous. The beauty is all Zoe's work. She she designed and put all that together, and it's just it's made it such a a wonderful project to be a part of. That's helps helps you slow down while you're reading because you can't help but stop and and look uh, at these beautiful f- images. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. And I mean, part of the the inspiration for the images and the way that they're laid out is the idea of marginalia which comes from if you look at old manuscripts, there's often, you know, there's writing in the middle of the page, but then there are these kind of illustrations that come on the sides. And the purpose of those in those books was partly mnemonic, so to remind people of where you're up to in a book, Um, but also to give you, I think, to give you little moments to um, wander off and have a little think, have a little imagine. So that's what those are there for as well. And I think also to to kind of humanise the some of the creatures that you might think are less cute. Um, <laughs> some of the spiders, some of the bugs, like, you know, it's it's pretty difficult to make a koala not look cute. Um, <laughs> that's, not, that's not a hard sell, but I think some of the other species that you need to get people to come on board with, um, particularly in urban environments, I think it helps to treat them all the same. So that was that was one of the ideas with the drawings in the book. Yeah, you offer great information about the different creatures we might encounter, but you also offer drawing and writing exercises. So I'd love to hear more about sort of the thought process behind these exercises. How did they come about? 
The second you ask people to draw and also to write to some extent, they tend to freak out a bit. <laughs> you know, like uh, the Urban Field Naturalist Project started as a web platform where people could send in stories about their encounters with urban nature. So a 200-word story, just something quite short that um, brings you into the experience that you've had looking at something or experiencing something in urban nature and you can add some photos or videos or drawings. But a lot of adults don't identify as being creative people. So if you ask someone to write a story or ask them to do a drawing, they kind of back away. And I think that you're really losing something there. So the exercises that are in the book, the sketching ones, aren't actually about creating good drawings. They're about capturing what you're seeing. So it's much closer to the idea of field notes that a scientist might take um, and much less about doing nice drawings. And so a lot of them are things like continuous line drawings that no matter how kind of good you are at doing those, they always look a bit wonky. <laughs> um, the point is not to draw really well because also all of us carry around or most of us carry around a smartphone now. So if you wanted to capture something accurately, you could take a photo or a video. So how else might we capture something that we don't look at through our screen? So there are exercises on drawing the movements of things, moving around a space. Um, and there are exercises that are designed to slow you down and make you grounded and mindful of the environment that you're being in. So rather than just counting, say, how many cockatoos you're seeing, you're also having to kind of capture where's the horizon line, how many trees are there, are there bins around, are there, you know, is there a car, are there some traffic cones? So some of the things that you might not think that you're supposed to look at when you're looking at a bird suddenly come into your understanding of the environment that you're actually in. So rather than getting us to pinpoint like what can I photograph because it will look good on Instagram, getting you to be slightly more immersed in the space and hopefully that opens up different kinds of questions that you're asking. Why are the ibis around the bins? Have you seen, as you talked about the, the motivations there, sort of think about why don't I get out into my backyard a little bit more often and um, this idea of connection and slowing down and screens and you know it's sometimes it's just easier you're at the end of the day just like fall into the chair and you watch tv and it's easier to do that but it also it doesn't build up that connection you might then develop through um, viewing the slaters in your in your garden or something and it seems purposeful that you're saying take away the screen and engage in that without that that thing sort of um, acting as mediator to reality or to to those in front of you. Um, do you have have you seen how that impacts people when they do put away the screen? They do step outside. Yeah, I suppose I can say it from a personal perspective, having done some of Zoe's continuous line drawing things. I'm I'm probably one of like she mentioned, I'm a bit of a, a drawing skeptic, and um. The whole notion of keeping your, your pencil on the power pen on the paper and just not lifting it off and just drawing what you see and not being too worried about um, being precious about what you send. It actually, it did force me because because you're looking. One of the exercises involves is basically keeping your, your pen or pencil on the paper and looking around and drawing what you see, and it does force you to look at the world in a slightly different way. So I was really blown away by just how much that changed my my, my worldview. We've, we've started to. Um, you know, try to adopt that with some of our students too, just to try and as a little exercise to get them away from being quite as hardwired as they are. So that's that, that's one thing that left out for me with Zoe's continuous drawings. But I guess I mean she this is her bread and butter. So 
feel like I'm a, we're answering each other's questions. That's though. good. It's, it's cross pollination. <laughs> it's um, yeah. I mean, it's also those. These are exercises. That, it's not my exercise. It's not something I've made up. These are all brought um, in for. I mean, you know, kids are, are better at doing this stuff because you probably did it at school. You might just might not remember it, but they're very they're classical. Um, art and design exercises that are designed to train you how to look as opposed to training you how to draw. And looking is the first part of drawing. And, again, mm. this is the thing that we all have in common, that it is actually about making observations and learning to see past what you think you see. Because if you say to a kid, draw a tree, what, or anyone draw a tree, what most of us will do is draw like a kind of stick for a trunk and something that resembles a circle or like a blob at the top where the leaves are. And if you think about it, like there are very few trees that actually look like that. And so when, you, when you're when you out in, in an environment, you have to draw a tree and you suddenly realise our trees are really weird. You know, most of the trees around us are, are quite <laughs> weird looking. And some of the exercises are also trying to get you to imagine you're looking at something from a bird's eye perspective or a worm's eye perspective, because quite often the most interesting stuff that's happening, particularly for a plant, is going on underground. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess with Adam's comment too, you, as you get older and especially if you're in academia, your world gets very small. You get very focused on minutia and very specific things and you don't often take the time to look outside of those that, those those boundaries. And I, I'm, I, you know, I, I think that's probably one of the, you know, the opportunities those exercises forces you to do to look a little bit, look at the world slightly differently. So that's that's just something I think that's really resonated with me. Yeah. And, and back to a previous comment, I think, um, what I appreciate is I really like the natural history sort of field naturalist perspective that you're bringing. And in in my scientific training, and particularly once you get into publishing and all that, that is sort of pushed aside. You're not meant to do natural history. You're not meant to think about the world in those sorts of ways or approach it in that way um, because they won't get a good publication. But it's often what really energises me is those little bits of interest out there. That's the, It speaks to that wonder. Um, that's that wonder that I think we lose a little bit when we don't allow ourselves to mm. engage in the world that you're encouraging us to do. I really appreciate. I really appreciate the message that's you've that you've put into the book. Yeah, and it's so relatable. Like I last Friday, I came out of a sort of a two-week writer's hole where I was just spent writing a chapter, trying to write a chapter for my thesis. And after that, you know, I sort of pushed it aside. It was done for now. And then I was like. Now I can go outside, you know, and I felt like I have to reconnect. <laughs> I have to reconnect to what's out there, what's beyond my computer screen and just be immersed, be immersed again in the world. Um, but I was also hoping to get some of your thoughts about the um, the stories from the fields that you mentioned. So these are the entries that people have, have added on your website, urbanfieldnaturalist.org. And um, people all over the world have shared their stories and some you have included in in this book with with a response to it um but what was it like going through these these entries and what yeah were there sort of themes that struck you or any other thoughts you had for, for me it was just that it was i mean this this sounds a bit twee but it was really nice i just really <laughs> it, it brightened my day to see the stories see the photographs that all the drawings that people had submitted with them and just 
they're probably conversations that we don't have as often as we should, like over, you know, coffee or tea, just saying I saw this bird or I saw a bug and little things like um, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be in the privileged position where some people are perhaps on our, on some of our social media, sometimes people will post um, not so much stories but just a photograph of something or ask a question about something. And when, you, when you've been around long enough, you start to recognise the insect and or the spider or the bird and know a little bit about their biology and it's really deeply satisfying to share that knowledge and and even just then see that people applying it i know we've done i've done some things recently in in, in sydney on, on on in my case on, on gadigal country um you know i've taken people on workshops and we have these large corvids these australian ravens and it's you know it's deeply satisfying to tell people that around here the big blackbirds aren't crows they're australian ravens so if you want to be that person in your friend group they go well actually when someone says i oh, look at the crow you go well actually that's an australian raven <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of satisfying to hear people. I mean, I know we can be a bit smug about that, but there's a not there's a, there's a not there's a nice thing about that that journey of learning, and I think that's been something that the stories have really helped with people see stuff, observe it. Some of them have, you know, and then, that's been one part. The second part is you can never forget that amateur naturalists have been the foundation for a lot of the things that we've learnt about the natural world. Um, it's it's harder, I think, for them now, but it's still part of it. I know in entomology there are some passionate amateur enthusiasts who are the world experts in their particular groups and that's just that's a that's a fact because they're the people that have devoted the time and have the expertise so i think that's been it's not just about you know feeling good about sharing a few snippets of knowledge it's actually just being reminded that a lot of people have a lot to offer in this that's the things the stories have really brought to me and the point of it was to say, and I think this is, for me, this is a really important part of my um, participation in this project and working with scientists, is that I think for a long time people have kind of said, well, everything that's going on with biodiversity loss and the climate crisis, like, that's a science problem. And it's not. It's, you know, like there is a cultural and ethical and social and moral dimension to these environmental issues that it, that are all of our problems. And I think if we just say, well, the scientists are over there counting things and making graphs, I think what's really great to see in this section at the end is that you get Dita's real human side and John's real human side coming out when they respond to these stories that people are writing that are very much about like this is my personal encounter with nature and this is how it made me feel. This is what it made me think. Um, you know, people write about like I was here with this person and we noticed this. Like you don't need that in the scientific observation, but it is bringing people bringing themselves into the story mm. and it's humanising all of this and it's an invitation to say um, everyone can participate into this, which is what the project is supposed to be about, an invitation for people to participate. So I think that section at the end is really important. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And um, there was this one, you also discussed the connection between science and art. And I was wondering if you could expand a bit more on that, because it's not a connection people often, often make. Yeah, I mean, I, I I talk about it, for, for me, I suppose it's a connection between science and design is really clear. Um, I position myself as a designer more than um, an artist, though, the, you know, they're blurry boundaries. But I think what's really interesting, if you look in the design world, so much design draws on nature for inspiration. I mean, going back to like the idea that we can fly because people unpicked how birds work. 
you know, um, there's that aspect of it. And then also the way we uh, we draw uh, creative inspiration from nature. But what that ends up doing is, I think, developing a kind of ethics of care for the things that we're looking at. And so science can be impenetrable for some people who do not speak the language of science. So the role of art or design for me is to, to build the bridges between those things, to find ways, even if you don't understand all of the the science behind what's happening with climate change, if you can find ways to soften it enough to hold a mirror sideways to let people in, projects like this, I think, do that. And, you know, observing the the noisy miners in my backyard might not turn me into a climate alarmist, but it certainly connects me with nature, which is a really important thing to do mm. if you want people to vote differently, if you want people to behave differently in their backyards. So I think that for me, the connection between a more creative approach to storytelling about our observations of nature is about changing the way people actually think and feel that they belong as part of nature rather than thinking that nature is something external to them and not their problem. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I love that um, point that you make. So, you know, in, in terms of science and design and nature and design, it's biomimicry. We look at nature and we identify opportunities to, to bring out the wonderful evolutionary sort of outcomes into human design. But what you said about looking out and, and connecting with nature and helping that understand us understand care and care yeah. for nature. I think that's such a beautiful idea. One of my real interests is perspectives taking. I think that the book encourages that if we can see this perspective or um, at least try to partake in the perspective of another creature. Does that change how we view the world and how their place in it and then our place in relationship to them? Yeah. Uh, I suggest we take a quick break. So we'll be back after Gold Energy by Electric Fields.
Even though wanting a rebrand, kicking it up on a rampage. Eh. Oh, by the time that I run, building the way to the real you, the world left to be Islander children aged three and four can access 15 hours per week of free kindergarten. In a kinder program, children learn through play, art, music and dance. Qualified teachers create culturally safe places for Aboriginal children and families. Koori kids shine at kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash kids shine. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. I've had a few jobs over the years. None I've really loved. A mate suggested I use my skills to teach. Turns out, I only needed to study for under two years. Now, I'm in demand. In a secure career I love. Come on kids, gather round. Are you ready? Fast track your study and start teaching sooner with an accelerated learning program. Visit vic.gov.au forward slash teach the future. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Freedom of Species. You just heard Cold Energy by uh, Electric Fields. We're talking with Zoe and Dieter from the Urban Field Naturalist Project. And one of the things I hope to hear a bit more about is, um, is one of your aims, which is to reimagine the field naturalist tradition for the 21st century. You're right, you acknowledge the problematic aspects of the of the discipline, racism, sexism, colonialism, and your aim is to recuperate the better aspects of the discipline and not forget the darker sides. Can you tell us a bit more about that? How do you see, see that for the future, for the 21st century? I, I think probably the, the big thing for me was probably trying to look at the good things about the naturalist tradition, which is, you know, the observations, the, the, the sharing of those observations and just the, the benefits that come with them and trying to say that, that, that those things, I mean, they're foundational, I think, for some of the science. So all, all, the, all the, the things you mentioned are there, but they're, they're part of a history that we can't change, but we can look at what we're hoping to do in the future. And I, th- I think one of the things is that, you know, trying to develop an inclusive approach to it that acknowledges both, um, I mean, First Nations perspectives, are, 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 they're intermittently embedded in the in the book, but we've made a really important point about a lot of the stories about First Nations and natural history observations aren't really ours to tell. So we're trying to make sure that they're acknowledged without being um, adopted. I, 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 think, I think trying to, you know, I, I find it, it is complicated because I'm actually a, huge fan of, of natural history and I'm really interested in in the early naturalists and their checkered history and you know there's there's 
you know, you don't have to scratch very far in pretty much any direction to find something that would be deemed, um, I think problematic doesn't do it justice. So there's, you know, th th so there's a lot of things there. So in terms of reimagining it, we're trying to say, well, okay, there's, there's the history's checkered it's, it's, and some of it's just plain awful, but there's a lot of good things that we can take. And into the modern world, this notion of being a field naturalist where you can actually develop skills, develop interests and, and do it your own way is a really powerful thing. So I guess, um, I mean, in, in my case, I was probably less cognizant than, than the, my colleagues on that, so I should probably defer to them because I was just thinking, yeah, I know it's bad, but I'm looking to the future and this is the stuff that I think we should be doing as a society across all, you know, cultures and barriers. It's a really useful thing to be doing and it's a fun thing to be doing and it's a great thing to be doing. But I appreciate that there's, um, in terms of reimagining it, we're probably just trying to make sure that um, what, what good things come with understanding and enjoying natural history aren't lost. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we were very conscious too that um, you can't do a storytelling, you know, you can't do storytelling about the natural world in Australia without acknowledging that this is unceded land and without acknowledging that there is um, cultural knowledge in every single place that we could possibly be in this country that is really valuable and interesting. But those are not our stories to tell. And so we point to where possible, we point to places that you can go and find out more. And none of us wanted to say, and I mean, I think one of the beautiful things about being um, a multidisciplinary project is that we're not claiming expertise here. Like no one is trying to say this is a book that tells you from an expert's perspective of what's going on. What we've actually tried really hard to do is say, here's a whole range of perspectives that you could take with you to go out and be an explorer of the world. But when you do it, just do it in an educated way. Don't be extractivist in the way that you're doing it. Don't go out and accidentally become another colonist in the way that you're doing it. So I'm not sure that mm. it would be possible to say even this is the best practice to go and be um, an urban field naturalist at this time. The main thing is to say be really conscious and really aware and do some research and be curious and find out and ask questions of the right kind of people or, or listen to the voices of the right kind of people. And when you're out there and you notice things, the main message that I think we're trying to say to take the, the kind of naturalist tradition forward is not just asking like, what is that and what's it doing, but how could I find out more? And so that's what um, Dita's saying. You know, I think one of the perspectives that we bring into it is cultural storytelling is really important, but that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So how could you open up from your nature observations rather than just saying I've captured that and moving on? Mm. It's something I hadn't really thought about. You know, you you outline the steps of, of becoming a, a field naturalist. First is slow down, observe, record. And then the last one is share, share, which really opens it up. You You wrote the book with the looming lockdowns. And you thought this might be a good guide for people in lockdown or you were already in lockdown. How do you look back on it now, now that lockdowns are mostly over? Is there, do you hear things about how it has changed people or how it carries over into the normal life? I mean, I hope we can use this as a tool to help people pick up on some of those things that they did. Like, I mean, I, I'm reminding myself now 
even though lockdown felt like a horrible thing, but I'm reminding myself that we used to go for picnics, you know, in the summer and maybe it's going to be too rainy, but like after work, we'd just go for a picnic and we'd, we'd make dinner as we normally would at home. And then we'd take it over to the park with a picnic blanket and eat it outside because it just felt like doing something different that wasn't behind a screen. And I'm thinking, why don't I do that now? Or that we would do our, you know, you had an hour of exercise a day and you'd go out and we would go and look at stuff. Like we would go and just look at nature or when we had a, you know, a radius to to move within, we'd find on a map, like where's a green spot that we could drive to and then do our hour or our, you know, spend our time outside in there. And I think the slowdown is the most important part of it because the thing that makes me feel um, I guess most anxiety now as we we seem to be coming out of the pandemic is that we haven't learned anything. And I think the thing that we forget too is that the pandemic came for, for those of us in Sydney and the East Coast in particular on the back of that really horrific summer. And what happened at that moment I think was a moment for us to say we need to rethink how we live in this world if we want to live in this world and there seemed to be a sense that that was building to something and then the pandemic wiped it out and then there was like a this sense of hope of look what we've learnt during the pandemic look how we can make these changes I hope that this book remains a kind of tool to say let's go back and step one is slow down. I feel like this is a, a book that's really needed right now and that you've written something that can be really helpful for um, mm. people to engage with um, the world quite close to them where we all exist you know we're all we all have a little mm. bit of grass or a tree out the front um, or something nearby and I'm certainly going to be taking it and I've been thinking about how to um, do something in the community that tries to tries to encourage people to do that perspectives taking with other animals. And I think I'm going to try and take some of the lessons and see how that works out there in my local community. So thank you. Really appreciate the work that you've done. Thank you. Yeah. And let us know how it goes because so much of this is about us trying to say we would love the community, like it to build community and communities. There's no one way of doing this or approaching it. So the more communities that are built around it or engage with it, the happier we are. Yeah, yeah, and uh, listeners can find the book in all of the local bookstores, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, if you feel like it, please share your stories on the uh, website urbanfieldnaturalist.org. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today, Zoe and Dieter. It's been really great. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Freedom of Species will be back next week from 1 till 2 p.m. And we're going to finish with the song Ripple by Sicko. <laughs> Take one and light it Cause it's a lot to figure out Know what I'm hiding But I don't want us falling out It's not what I thought it was See where I'm coming from I Take one and light it to stop myself from spinning out Running my mind, so I might try Changing my mind, but it's not right Couple bad nights, it's enough time Just let it rip out Don't say no, say 
give you what you need It's paralyzing Bet I don't feel the same, baby to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.